If Fog Could Sing Stories by Charlie Price The Beagle by Charlie Price Read by Charlie Price Scott adored saying it. I was adored once too. That line alone made it all worthwhile for Scott, being cast as Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night, when, at least initially, he had far rather have had the part of Malvolio fall to him. It was the time of the summer Shakespeare's at Lard, the London Academy of Royal Dramatics. Scott had enjoyed greater glory as Astrov in Uncle Vanya the term before, and Ferdinand in the Duchess of Malfi the term before that. But Sir Andrew was yielding fruits richer and more bountiful than he had originally anticipated. The character's romantic hesitancy, his isolation, his poignant, clumsy awkwardness intrigued Scott. Mistress accosts and all that. It seemed second nature to portray Sir Andrew as a closeted homosexual, which Scott did. Scott's friend in the first year turned rival in the third year, Spark, was playing Sir Toby Belch. In most ways, the experience of rehearsing Twelfth Night was edifying. Two weeks in tracksuits went by sluggishly, hours of exploration at the level of text and movement, and of course a great number of those hours did not involve Scar to Sir Andrew, but the days of the succeeding fortnight leading up to the performances went by swiftly, and the costumes, cream and velvet suits and pinstripes and smoking jackets, were soon sewn and hanging upon hangers in the costume department design room, creased and soiled artfully, to the effect of worn raggedness in the case of Sir Andrew and Sir Toby's garb. The set, fashioned in bird's-eye miniature, was now made in life-size. Large panels, carpented and filed and finished, lay in the art department workshops, waiting to be erected in the theatre, and musicians were assembled, and the original incidental and vocal compositions for the production were brought to life off the manuscripts on which they had been unenthusiastically scrawled and later meticulously engraved in digital form. But for Scott, it was all about Act 2, Scene 3. His energies of aspiration were focused on this one scene, for it had in it a line of perfect, sad and simple beauty. I was adored once, too. Scott had great skills as an actor, facility and temperament conducive to stage acting, imagination and potential well on the way to realising itself. But he had two other things as well which did not promise to do him any favours a terrible temper, and a colossal ego. Anything which prevented him from doing great acting was hostile in his mind. The conditions around him had to work to enable him to reach his full potential, line after line. He truly believed that no one could get more out of the part of Sir Andrew than himself. His was an extraordinary presence. The powers he commanded were so exemplary as to be divine. He would move people to tears. Eyes would not be able to leave him and those eyes in the dark twilight of the auditorium would weep. And that was the line with which he would win over every heart. I was adored once, too. But something was always lacking in that moment, consecrated in and out of weeks by Scott, in the rehearsals and in every performance. He wasn't enabled to channel anything beautiful, anything tugging, anything that was finally authentic and subsequently lasting in the eventful black mane and bay that was the lit stage and its watchers in darkness. On the last night, Scott was partly depressed, partly intense and intent, intensely intent, perfervid. 
He moved from foot to foot in the wings by the prop table, which was marked out in hopscotch grids of white tape, each prop, and a note bearing the prop's precise moment of utilisation placed inside each square, including a suitcase full of dildos, with which Feste was directed to do a routine at the end during the Rain It Raineth Every Day number. Spark joined Scart, and they waited in the wings together as the second scene of the second act drew to a close. Too hard a knot for me to untie. Scart felt this way. I have to move people, he thought. I have to do due justice to the work. I need my talent rewarded with tears, my own or others. My last chance. Scart didn't like to speak or be spoken to while waiting to enter, but Spark uncharacteristically tapped Scart on the shoulder. Scart had been vocal to Spark about his struggles. Spark had an idea. He said he had something he was going to try, but he couldn't tell Scart what it was. Just go with me on this, Spark said. Respond naturally, don't force it. How will I know when you're doing it? Oh, you'll know. Onto the stage they went. They staggered with performative drunkenness from stage left to a table in the centre of the stage, a little downstage. Approach, Sir Andrew, were the first words of the scene. Spark in his fat suit and ruffled linens holding a bottle in one hand tossed the five syllables nonchalantly behind his shoulder, and Scart approached, as did Feste with his banjo and the suitcase full of dildos. A foolish thing was but a toy and all that. The newly composed version of O Mistress Mine was sung. Scart thought it a cloying, falsely chipper tune by which to render in song verses so melancholic as those of O Mistress Mine, but he listened beautifully notwithstanding, beguiled as if the actor playing Feste were a siren, a siren with a banjo, who had wandered into a drama school production of Twelfth Night. Malvolio made his interruption, and Spark said, Dost thou think, because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? He spoke the line perfectly, with a grubby virtue, avenging Malvolio's virtue. Then came the exposition of Mariah's dastardly device. The moment had arrived, the penultimate line before the Blessed One arrived, prettily enough in Scart's Andrew mouth. Before me she is a good wench. He believed it. He had dated Nina, the actress playing Mariah the year before. She'd let him down, and he hated her for it. He'd really liked that treacherous bitch. Then his round ginger co-star replied, She's a beagle, true bred, and one that adores me. What are that? Scart's heart was racing, trembling thunderously. I was adored once too, he thought quickly, preparationally, but aloud, he allowed the line to be thought of. Summoned, born from the pregnant silence, the silence glistened in the blue nocturnality of lights that lit the space where he fretted his last hours. He began to speak the line. He thought he had it. He had it. I was adored. Let's to bed, knight. Thou hadst need send for more money. Scart was stunned for a millisecond and then recovered in the next fragmented moment. Recovered. If I cannot recover your niece, I am a foul way out. Send for money, knight. If thou hast her, not in the end, call me cut. If I do not, never trust me. Take it how you will. Come, come, I'll go burn some sack. It is too late to go to bed now. Come, knight. Come, knight. They exit. The text went by with routine. Only routine. Without imagination. Scart staggered off the stage and could hardly see he was so confused and upset and enraged. Spark had interrupted him. He'd not let him speak the line. That was his big idea? To steal his bit? 
Scart collapsed into a chair in the wings and trembled with palpitations. Scart had professional scruples and would not confront Spark. He would not break what spell there was. But he couldn't wait for the performance to be over so he could confront Spark. And he would confront him indeed. How hard he would confront him. What a confrontation it would be. He would confront his Toby so hard he might never recover. Scart's attentions and energies were not on the work, nor were his aspirations, his depth of feeling, his imagination, his sense of the playful and improvisatory. But in a way he felt liberated by his rage, by his fury at what Spark had done. His mind was full of requiem for that adored line he hadn't been able to speak, and he realised that he wasn't pushing any more, forcing his performance any more. The pain was there, and it was authentic, and he was truthful as he spoke the lines. But, and he could not escape this reality, some code had been broken, some line had been crossed. And Scart knew that he was not to be crossed. When that I was but a little tiny boy, a foolish thing was but a toy. The rain it raineth every day, will strive to please you every day. Scart left the stage a few moments prematurely, truculently during the bows. He broke off from the company, and skulked backstage with a misanthropic scowl. Spark retreated jocularly into the darkness of the wings, and slapped Scart on the back and congratulated him. Scart feigned thanks and reciprocated coolly. Spark went upstairs. Scart was watching him. Scart passed Nina, and she passed him, and they exchanged stiff and desultory congratulations. The feste actor was milling about with the suitcase of dildos. He bumped into Scart and asked if he knew where Snail, the stage manager, was. Something was controlling Scart. The desirous poison, the driven lethality in his blood, spoke on his behalf. I'll take it to her, he said. He'd had an idea. I was looking for her anyway. I think she's in the upper booth. Thanks, the actor said, adding, Nicely done, by the way. You too, Scart replied. Bravo. And the suitcase of dildos changed hands. Scart, still costumed, shared a dressing room with Spark, where he knew Spark would be undressing himself. Scart climbed the stairs and entered dressing room 3A, knocking curtly and without waiting for a holler of admission. He had as much right to be there as anyone else, and he'd seen Spark's repulsive ginger junk a handful of times already. Scart entered. Spark was nearly clothed. He was fixing his hair, disarrayed a little beneath his curly wig, in the mirror. Hello, mate, Spark said. Good evening, Scart replied. Sorry to interrupt you during the I was also adored bit. Really organic, though. It gave your performance a sort of subdued quality, which I think was really moving. Well done. Scart scowled inwardly. He was screaming within. And said, You're a remarkable player, Spark. You like plays. You like playing. Playing games. Playing around playing me like a pipe, like a bloody guitar. Scart's heart leapt. He said, I've had an idea, and he swung the suitcase full of dildos around in a swift, offensive, maiming, semicircular blow and knocked Spark unconscious. Spark slipped onto the floor with a slap, folded costumes in a number of effects plummeted with him, and a small jet of blood jumped from the side of his head, just beneath his ear. Scart locked the dressing room door behind him, and regarded his semi-supine handiwork. Spark was breathing, his chest rose and fell, though his eyes were lidded tight, and his mouth ugly. Scart didn't fancy discussing this at any time in the near future, or at any time at all. He began to sing, the old tune he loved, 
those beautiful lines. What is love, tis not hereafter, Present mirth hath present laughter, What's to come is still unsure. He began writing the room, tidying up the mess that had been made in an instant by his orange co-star's sudden falling over. In delay there lies no plenty, he sang. He unzipped the suitcase of dildos and took a large ribbed violet one from the vessel, which was bloodied a little on the corner that Spark's face had incurred. He held the dildo. It was a foreign thing. It had that dentist glove latex smell. Then he bent down and leant in close at the fleshy level of Spark's face, made stupid and blank by Scart's act of violence. He broke off singing for a moment. I forgive you, he said, and blessed his co-star's last living minute with a kiss on the cheek. Scart opened Spark's unresponding mouth and slid the dildo smoothly down his windpipe. Down its length slipped, deeper. It fit like a glove, or rather, Spark's esophagus fit like a glove around the dildo. Scart spasmed awake with a terrible shudder, wretched a burst of white vomit, and took about forty seconds, an interminable forty seconds to die, making awful spluttering noises all the while, then quieted, quieted. In delay there lies no plenty, so come and kiss me, sweet and twenty. Youth's a staff will not endure. He sang the last few syllables, very staccato, final, conclusive, slowing, as Spark expired. Scott said, Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Spark looked motionlessly back at him. His eyes tensed open and held there, in an unending tortured instant, his full mouth, no speech possible ever again, his career interrupted by a mortal mouthful, his windpipe interrupted, his respiration interrupted, his life interrupted. Scott dimmed the light to darkness and left the dressing room. He locked the door of 3A behind him from the outside. In the foyer bar, Everyone told Scart how moved they were by his performance, and someone even bought him a drink, saying, Oh, when Sir Toby interrupted you and you were saying something about being adored, your face, you looked so broken. It was heartbreaking. And then he asked where Spark was, by the way. After a few gins, enriched more deeply with excitement, dramatics and homicide, he was tipsy and accepted graciously when a girl who had really enjoyed his performance and seemed to have a crush on him and kept imitating his movements suggested they hang out sometime. But Scott changed his mind about that. Not about hanging out with her, but about hanging out with her sometime. He wanted better. He wanted more of everything. He wanted more sooner. Why delay? Scott said. Why not now? She said, Well, it's getting late. I'm feeling... But Scott interrupted her. I want another. You should have another too. Two G&Ts, please, he called over the counter to the barman, whose eyes met his, just at that moment. Large one, he asked the girl, who shook her head.